This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's uh, three minutes after two o'clock, so I have to start. Let us say a word of prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for this afternoon. We thank you for this day. We thank you for an opportunity to study, to learn. We need your presence. We need your Holy Spirit to help us to understand and most of all to wisely apply in our lives to hold unto our faith in you. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, I don't know some of new faces here. You, uh, in the first presentation, I was in general terms trying to explain to you, to depict, to picture, to depict to you what the emerging church movement is all about. And I gave you some major characteristics about it. Things that come out the most common among in the writings of the emergence. When you meet the emergence, or people who belong to the emerging church movement, or who identify as such, when you read their literature, of course, uh, some of them emphasize, they em uh, each one or each group emphasizes what is interesting to them. Some of them are very heavy on, uh, for example, spiritual formation. Others are very heavy on uh, social activism. A person like Brian McLaren, he is pretty much covering many, all of the aspects of the emerging church movement. I don't find him discussing a lot mysticism, but lately he is more into it as well. He is more comprehensive than the others. Uh, one thing that you will come across, that, that was the first part of the uh, of first session today, or the first uh, presentation. One, the Emerging Church is not a new denomination. It is a new conversation, new way of seeing things. It's new way of thinking about Christianity. And of course, they have an objective to introduce this so-called new Christianity. Um, there are not, uh, it's ecumenical movement, very much. All of them are ecumenical. Theistic, theistic evolutionism is very much part of it. Um, they emphasize spirituality at the cost of religiosity or in contrast to religiosity. <coughs> Okay, what else I'm missing? And one thing that comes out a lot, often, many times, in the writings of all of them, is this idea that we, as society, as Christian church, as individuals, we are undergoing a process of tremendous change, a change which is a affecting our fundamental way of thinking and living and doing Christianity. And so the world, the word worldview often comes out. And so there's so much 
mentioning it and talking about it. And I think this is what they use in their trying to convert listeners to their own way of thinking. The argument go basically goes this way. Everything is changing, everything has changed, therefore everything must change. If we want to translate that, it means, look how we have technology, science, changed our lives in such a way that our world and the world of our fathers and, and grandparents is totally different. And uh, therefore, life is so different. Therefore, because everything changed, everything must change. That means now Christianity, the way we did it, it doesn't work anymore. Therefore, we have to change, come up with a new kind of Christianity. Okay? So that is basically the bottom line of the argument in a simple language. So that prompted me to say, okay, wait a minute, let me see what is that worldview. And everybody's using the term worldview, left and right. I mean, we all do it. And so that took me a number of months and books and reading it and studying it. And there are some, there are a lot of works done on that particular topic. It's a whole subfield of academic works when it comes to worldview. What is a worldview? And so I addressed that issue, and I have discovered some very interesting things. And uh, I think for us Adventists, it's very useful. We can use it as a tool in our way, the way when we talk to people. And also it, it can help us a lot. And so I believe that my whole work on emergence Christianity of everything that I am telling you about, much of it I am simply borrowing from others and connecting the dots. On this particular area, I think I am the most innovative here, and this is the most original of some of my own thinking, learning from others and then putting it in a much clearer and simpler way. So that's what I'm sharing with you. So, the question is, uh, just in the second presentation, I pointed out to you that the idea of the emerging church goes way back before, way back before 2000, before even Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Paget, and all these emergents got together and decided to call themselves emerging church, that the idea of emerging church went back to at least to 1960s, to the Second Vatican Council. And then uh, I talked about what happened at the Second Vatican Council, basically a reorientation of the church. The Catholic Church simply changed its, decided to change its attitude, to change her language, and the way it deals and relates to the secular world and to the Protestants. That is the fundamental change. And some of us Adventists probably in the past did not pay much to attention to that because we Adventists also focus on doctrines. And since the Second Vatican Council did not issue any new doctrinal definitions or uh, new doctrines, 
It did not address all doctrines. It did not negate any of the doctrines. And it probably slipped. That, that phenomena slipped under our radar. And therefore, we kind of dismissed it. And I heard a couple of our people kind of dismissed it. Oh, well, uh, the church didn't change anything. Basically, it's attitude and the language. Therefore, nothing to worry about it. Well, it is precisely the change in attitude and the change of the language that made a profound change on what is happening in society and how society perceives the Catholic Church ever since. And so um, I think it is very important. And today, scholars and emergents themselves, and many scholars who are not necessarily emergents, they are all now beginning to recognize, and there is more and more, an increasing number of books being written on the Second Vatican Council and the meaning of it and how it impacts and arguments is coming, it's, if I may use the term, emerging, it's coming, appearing, okay? The arguments it's coming that the Second, what happened in the Second Vatican Council is definitely very important for Christianity in 21st century. So therefore, we have to pay attention to it. Now, behind the Second Vatican Council, the idea, the question is now, what helped that change? And many scholars are attributing the greatest, the, the, great, the biggest credit, the credit that they give to someone who helped the most in the change of that attitude is Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And those of you who were not here, who don't know much about him, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin is a French Catholic, Jesuit, and also well-known scientist, uh, and especially in geology and in paleontology. Uh, scientists do know about him, and uh, he died in 1955. And I don't have much time to tell you more about him. Now I'm going to just tell you something. This is what you see on the screen there. This is a diagram from his book, the phenomenon of men. I have a copy here, The Phenomenon of Men. It's, uh, this is the book. Uh, he wrote several other books. This is not the only one. Uh, none of his works were published while he was alive because the church prohibited. That means the Vatican Curia, the, uh, uh, in parentheses, the conservative forces within the Catholic Church prohibited him to publish his works and even to teach at uh, European universities. Because, and uh, that's somewhat understandable because traditional Catholics, conservatives, they are pretty much creationists. And also because his teachings is, and his worldview, his understanding of how everything came into being is directly addressing the question of the original sin. And that is one of the cherished doctrines of the Catholic Church. And it is, it, the Curia understood, perceived that his teaching is undermining the doctrine of the original sin. So therefore, he was prohibited to do that. But he died in uh, April 1955. And within a very short time, the book in French came out, The Phenomenon of Men, and then... Um, and eventually was translated in English and many other languages. This book is considered, as, uh, uh, as I in, uh, told you earlier in the, first, in the second session, uh, when HarperCollins made a survey of 100 most important 
books on spirituality. The phenomena of men came as number one. You, we Adventists don't, I mean, we, many of you don't even know this book exists. But it is making fun, profound changes in the thinking of Christians all over the country and in many seminaries today uh, throughout the country. So, um, um, this is uh, from diagram from him, from his book on page 192. Now, I have, in order to make it a little more graphically for you to understand, I have changed the graphic slightly and I came up with something new. This is the graphic, but let me... Okay, the, uh, he believes, Tayyad de Shodan argued, that everything that exists, now we are talking about the existence of entire cosmos. That every, now, of course, you, you know, some of you know about science, at least something. Okay, scientists tell, tells us that about 13.7 billion years ago, Big Bang took place. Well, Tayyar de Shadan makes a round number. He says, well, approximately billion years ago, everything started with, and he says that the entire creation goes through four different phases. Now, these are not successive phases. What I mean by that, it doesn't mean cosmogenesis starts and it ends. And do you see at the bottom I have this cosmogenesis and then at the very bottom I have that same color line. That means cosmogenesis started 15 billion years ago and it still goes on. And then biogenesis started approximately 2 billion years ago. That means life appeared in this evolutionary process. Um, and then uh, approximately 1 million years ago, consciousness emerged or came into existence, emerged, intelligence. And then, uh, now he's not precise, 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, the numbers are different by, uh, by people who interpret uh, uh, Tayard, or to you and me, Jesus Christ incarnated himself 2,000 years ago. But the numbers go anywhere, 10,000, 20,000 years. But that's beside the point. The point is that when Christ incarnated himself, now that incarnation is not necessarily clear in Tayard's writings whether it, it is the incarnation we are talking about 2,000 years ago when Jesus, when God was created, uh, I mean, was born as Jesus of Nazareth, okay, Jesus Christ or maybe some other kind of incarnation. The point is that Christ incarnated himself and became part of this evolutionary process. Therefore, you will find some works which argue that cause, terminology slightly uses here, not changes. So we're talking about cosmic Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ, who is now part of this uh, evolutionary process. And as you see on the previous uh, diagram, there comes a point where from the beginning, evolutionary process goes into divergence, in diversity. But then at one point, and this is now where Christ becomes, um, incarnates himself into the emerging process, now it begins to converge. Everything is now going down. And Christ, 
work, job, task. Responsibility is to take the entire creation and take it into that leads it to that omega point, which is down in the distant future. And that omega point is something like being united in being coming one with God, with divine. Now, these are resonate. Some of you ask me about uh, some of your experiences with it. Now, listen, keep this in mind as I go into it, showing you some different worldviews and what is happening here. Um, all right, now, this is, as you can see here, I, I divided, you know, this uh, triangle. It goes from the point and it becomes wider. That is kind of in diversion, creation. And then, again, goes, converges toward the omega point at the end. Now, what is important to notice is, in what way is Tayar different than Charles Darwin? Well, Darwin argued that evolutionary process is driven by the principle of, uh, um, uh, no, 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 natural selection, thank you very much. Principle of natural selection, which amounts to the fittest organisms survive. Well, Tayard disagreed with that, and he said, no, the evolutionary process is driven actually by the principle of emergence. Because in Darwinian framework, there is no divine force, there is no God, there is nothing of that sort. Everything is natural, goes through natural uh, process of evolutionary process and uh, natural selection and so on. There is one problem, one weak spot with naturalism, with this Darwinian uh, system. And that is, if you begin to argue that there is no God, there is no intelligence, nothing. But if you are arguing that everything came through evolutionary process, but that this principle of natural selection is leading nature from less complex to more complex organisms. That means it goes from a simple to more complex. And if you argue that, then you are implying some kind of intelligence. You see, that's a weak spot for people who are pure Darwinians, for people who are naturalists, like Carl Sagan, who argue matter is all there is, and there is nothing else but matter. Okay? Now, to argue that somehow in this natural selection, matter their consciousness comes in. Where does it come from? That's a problem. And some honest scientists will tell you there is absolutely no connection between matter and the appearance of conscience. You just cannot. So that is the weak spot. Tayard, coming up now with his interpretation of evolutionary process, saying that there is this factor X which makes breakthrough, it's a divine force, then he eliminates that problem because now divine force steps in. So what he is saying, Tayard is saying, that God, divine force, divine being, it's there in that same evolutionary process. 
so that God is part of the evolutionary process. Now, when we say God, we are not necessarily thinking about a person. Maybe yes, maybe no. Teilhard is not clear on that. But you will see some later how these things are probably becoming now more and more clear. So now, let's talk about worldview. Now, a little philosophical thinking here. Ask ourselves questions. If I were to ask you, and I already asked that in the second part, was there a medieval worldview? And every time I ask people, do you believe that there was a medieval worldview? They will tell you, yeah. Was there a modern worldview? I will say, yes. Well, if they are different, then the question is, and we know in history pretty much, medieval world ended up there approximately 14th, 15th century. Modern world, when did it begin? Well, modern world begins, uh, I don't know, are you going to put, can we date it? Well, is it 15, 17, 1648, 1789, Different historians will take uh, different dates. But the question is, there is a change from one to the other. And that change took number of generations and, uh, and quite few ideas in order to change it, because the two are very different. So how did we get from one to the other? And what I'm trying to point out to you, what I see is, that we are now going through another change. And that is, we are, we as a society, post, that's what post-modernity is. That means we, we as a society are abandoning the modern worldview and seeking something different. And now what is that different? That is in the making. And uh, it seems to me like emergence Christianity is probably that, uh, that is bringing that new worldview, or maybe it is one, we'll see, but you'll see later. Now, what is worldview? Can we define it, first of all? I, because people like to, they insist, we have to define it, okay. I'm a little not comfortable with word define, I rather use the term describe it. How many of you worldviews are there? If I ask my students how many worldviews are there, they will say, well, many, thousands. Okay, if you ask people, does, does, does each one of us have a worldview? What would you say? Yes. Uh, since, and they would reason, well, if every one of us has his or her own worldview, and each one of us has different view of the world, therefore we have as many worldviews as there are many of us. That would amount about 7 billion worldviews in the world today. Well, if that is true, then we should stop our discussion because there is no point discussing about worldview anymore because we will never be able to discuss all 7 billion worldviews. And therefore, it doesn't make sense. What I'm saying is that there are no 7 billion worldviews. There are only so many worldviews. You and I may have slightly, we may have differences on understanding the world. So nuances and differences in our understanding the world and our view of the world may be slightly different. But the worldview as a concept, there are, there are only so many. Do you have one? Everybody. The, the answer is everybody has a worldview. And you will see why is that. Is there anyone who does not have a worldview? There is no such a thing. Everybody has. Uh, 
or people are simply not aware of it, or people don't think about it. Can one discard and live without worldview? You can discard one, but you adopt another one. Okay? You'll see how that works. Where do we get one? Do we go and buy it in a store or somewhere? No. Uh, you, know, you, you, you form it yourself. Can we change it? I've heard some people who argue with me and says, you know, nobody can change his or her own worldview. I says, that's all total nonsense, you know. Then uh, why, why are you trying to convince me other ways to change my opinion? I mean, the very fact that you and I disagree and is that I have my worldview, you have your own. One thing is now that comes across, I came, uh, uh, David Noggle, in his book, Worldview, The History of a Concept, it's one of the best works on uh, the worldview, and you can go on from that. And he says, most scholars acknowledge that it was Prussian philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who uh, first coined the term Weltanschauung, which is translated into English, worldview. And it appears in Kant's Critique of Judgment, published in 1790. This is only about a um, few years, nine years before the French Revolution. Kant is the first one who comes up with this term, Weltanschauung, okay, worldview in English. But Kant was not precise what did he exactly mean by that. But the term picked up by many other scholars, first theologians and then uh, sociologists, anthropologists, and historians and philosophers and so on. And today it is very much in the use. And now I went to go through all of these works and try to figure out myself, what is this? And so there is a work by James Sire. Some of you probably know his book called The Universe Next Door. He is simplifying it for college students. And he, uh, so far, his book came, went through five editions. I'm quoting from the fourth edition. And th he, this is his definition, if we want to say, what worldview is. And I agree pretty much with this one, except that I'm giving some new nuances here. He says, and read it very careful here, and pay attention to every detail. A worldview is a commitment, a, foundation, a fundamental orientation of the heart. Now, that means, and all of the people, doesn't matter how dis they disagree what worldview is and how they differently define it, but all of them agree that when we speak about worldview, we are talking about something that is like filter through which everything we receive, it goes through, we are talking something like our glasses. When you put glasses, that you see, that's how you see the world. If you put pink glasses, the world will become pink. If you put uh, glasses which are, uh, I don't know, uh, stronger, or you know, the, the world can be hazy or clear or whatever. The world can be, it's like binocular, like glasses. It's like uh, your uh, filter. Something fundamental, all of them agree on that one. So that it means it's, it's some, a commitment, it's something that stays with you. 
you don't change your worldview like this. It takes, it takes time to slowly begin to modify it. It's a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed. You can express your worldview through a story or in a set of presuppositions, assumptions, which may be true, but you hold them. They may be partially true, but you hold them. They may be even entirely false, but you still hold them because you believe in it. Which we hold, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously. We hold them consistently or inconsistently. Now all of that about the basic constitution of reality. And that provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. Worldviews themselves, Nogel says, if only tacitly are a response to the problem of the existence and meaning of the world, and at least sketch a subliminal answer to the ultimate questions of existence. Now, if we look now, the question is, how does this come into being? What are we talking about? You see, before Kant, before 18th century, we don't find in ancient literature, medieval literature, we, nobody talks about worldview. Did they have one? Of course. But they did not address it. Why? Because it is only in recent three, four hundred, five hundred years that uh, European academics are beginning to address something like a worldview. Why? Because this is the, in the last three, four hundred years, we have the more intense intermingling, interaction, interrelation between different civilizations, different cultures, compared to what happened in the years past. In ancient times, medieval period, civilizations pretty much existed on their own, kind of separate. And yes, there was some interaction, but very limited number of individuals. Starting with imperialism of the 15th, 16th century, and especially after in the 19th and 20th, and now later in 20th century, it becomes more and more intense. It, to, in order to make a point, it comes today, today because of our technology. You and I are facing on a daily basis people from other civilizations, other worldviews, all the time. Today, compared to, let's say, 60 years ago or 100 years ago, today, anywhere you go in the world, you will find people with whom you intermingle in the daily basis from every other single end of the world. That's a reality. And today, when you talk to people, people from China, from India, from Native America, South America, Europe, People have different worldviews, and that's what we are facing. Therefore, we are talking about it, because we are facing an issue. So, the question is, how does that come into being? Well, let's ask questions. Man, time is passing by. I better hurry up here. Um, in daily lives, what do you think is the ultimate question everybody asks? Pardon me? Why am I here? That's a question of meaning. What's the meaning of purpose? Why am I here? It's connected to suffering because if life was good and peachy and no suffering, no that, we would never ask question, what's the meaning of life? We are asking because we're suffering. The, qu the simple question is, it's the question of death. That is the question we all ask. That's the, the question of life. 
And you go through ancient literature, medieval literature, modern literature, you go through literature today, music, artwork, notice one thing, all, in one way or the other, are asking fundamental questions of suffering, pain, loneliness, abuse, injustice, death, all of that. That's the human problem. These are the fundamental questions of life as they are stated by James Sire. And there are seven of those. What is real? Talking about the external reality. Is there something beyond external reality? That means the world of the, world of the spirits, that what we cannot see. And we are, well, is, is there something beyond? Scientists, naturalists will tell you no, this is it. People say no, there is something beyond. What is human being? What happens after death? How do we know what we know? Who decides what is right and wrong? What is the purpose of life? Okay, these are the fundamental questions of life. And the one that you pointed out is the last one. That's the question of attitude, the purpose of life. And then we, I have this question that I added. Well, what should my attitude be toward all of this? How do I relate to all of that? Now, philosophers use these phrases. All of these questions are nothing else but questions of metaphysics, epistemology, and axiology. It's just phrased differently. Now, in brown that you see there, these are some of the other questions that I like to point out to you. You can rephrase this in a different kind of elaborate more so that uh, makes it easier for us who deal with emerging Christianity to see what are the issues here. The question is, is matter eternal? Scientists will tell you it is indestructible. It is eternal. Well, the Bible tells you everything that is created, God created. Is did God create matter? Well, if God created matter, that means God can destroy it. So matter is not eternal. Now, is there anything beyond this reality? Is there God? Well, you can say, yes, there is God. You believe there is. Science cannot prove it. You cannot prove it. Nobody can prove there is God. Nobody can prove there is no God. You see, that's an assumption. It's something that I believe in. Now, you may ask me, why do you believe it? Well, I can give you a lot of reasoning and why I believe there is God. But the point is, it's still an assumption. It's something that you have to believe in. See, we are at the level of beliefs. Then, uh, if you say, there, you can say, okay, how many worldviews are there? This is a one important question that defines all the other questions. If you say, is there God? You can answer that question in two ways only. You can say, there is God and there is no God. Or you can say, I don't know. Well, that is avoiding to answer yes or no. Now, if you say there is no God, pretty much, then you have that worldview. You see how that comes into shape. But if you say there is God, then there is a next question. And that is, what kind of God are you talking about? Because you have all kinds of gods. And you will see that Hindu God, is Brahman, is different than Christian God. But even among Christians, you will see that conception and understanding of who God is different among Christians themselves. So what kind of gods are we talking about? What is a human being? Is human being made, is human being made of body and soul? I have even Adventist kids who say, well, human being has a soul. Well, what does that mean, has a soul? Well, how is human being made of? Well, it's made out of body and soul. 
Well, that's not biblical. Biblic the Bible tells us that human being is made out of but dust body and the breath of life, which now combined becomes a soul. So human beings are, biblically speaking, they don't have soul, unless you want to say they have life. Human beings are souls. We have breath of life as long as we live. You see? So th these are little differences here that are important. What is death? That's a question. A lot of people, when they will, these people will tell you, they will explain that is another state of existence. Well, when God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat, you will die, what did he mean by that? They would experience change. Pardon me? They would experience change. But okay, now, that's not clear, ma'am, because if you say they would experience change, people who tell you that soul lives after death, Yes, you experience change, and now you exist as a soul. That's it. It's not what, what did Jesus? When did what did God mean? He says you will die. You will die. Obviously, the answer is obvious because you will not live. Say so what is death? Not being alive. That's it. But you see, and you will see that when we speak of naturalist worldview. And I'll come to a moment. You will see that that world you could not exist for too long. It existed only for a short period of time. Because human beings cannot accept that fact. When I die, this is it. It's over. Total. Over. That's very difficult for humans to accept. Now, this is important for us. How do we know what we know? What is conscience? Where does conscience come from? But this question of what are the sources of knowledge? Scientists tell us that science is the source of knowledge, and many people believe that is the source of knowledge. But is that the only source of knowing reality? Because we scientists, through science, we humans, we can learn a lot, and we have learned a lot about reality. But is it possible that there is another source? And I'm referring to the re special revelation. Could it be, if there is God, that God can tell us about reality what we, don't, we cannot learn through science? So the question of what are the sources or how many sources that's essential to our understanding of what is going on today. And then you have this question of repository spiritual authority, where it comes to the right and wrong, or uh, the how do we know what we know, it's this question, where is the repository of spiritual authority? Do you know what the Protestant Reformation was all about? The central issue, when Martin Luther rebelled against the, against the church, that was the issue. The issue was, where is the repository of spiritual authority? Is it in the church and the Pope, as the church argued and the Pope argued? Or is it in the scriptures? Now, the church says, yes, the Bible is the word of God and the church believes in the scriptures and so on. But the problem is that the church would say, it is the word of God, but it is the church who interprets the scripture. So now, 
you and I when we face and Martin Luther. So, well, the church is teaching this and I'm reading the Bible. Well, I see the difference now. Whom do I listen? So the question of repository, where is the repository of spiritual authority? That is the most important. That is the heart of the Protestant Reformation. That principle, when they say sola scriptura, you heard of that one. That is what it means. But you will often hear people tell you, oh, the sola, sola uh, scriptura does not work. That principle doesn't work. You cannot read the Bible alone. Because the people who read the Bible alone, uh, they don't understand. And you cannot live only reading Bible. You have to read other literature. Well, unfortunately, there are Christians who refuse to read anything else but the Bible. And then they go in another extreme. The problem is, that is not what sola scriptura means. Sola scriptura does not mean you read Bible alone. And that's it. The, the sola scriptura means that the spiritual repository spiritually or spiritual authority is in the Bible alone. But you read other literature. You educate yourself. And I strongly believe, I... Uh, uh, even our Ellen G. White, our prophet, tells us you, you should excel in terms of knowledge. You must know everything as much as possible. But when it comes to where is the repository, spiritual authority, that is in Scripture alone, in the Word of God. So that is important. What is the purpose of life and all of that? I have to keep moving. The time is uh, uh, working against me. Now, um, a survey of human history shows us that from the very beginning human existence of this world, humans tried to come up with the most meaningful and satisfying answers. And that's why they produce all this work. Just go and read the Epic of Gilgamesh. The whole Epic is what? It is quest for immortality. It, is, it was very popular in ancient times, and people read it, and it's, we have it preserved. And you can see, people are always struggling. Read Plato, read Socrates, read Aristotle, read Augustine, read all the philosophers, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, even, I don't know, Derrida, Foucault, Foucault. I mean, everybody is dealing with these fundamental questions of life. And so in order to answer the ultimate question of suffering and death, we have to answer these questions of fundamental questions of life. And so, since we are the most affected with science, we will start, I will start now showing you the modern worldview, the other, and I have to do that fast, so pay attention, please. Um, and I will go then to the ancient times, and then I'll come to the biblical worldview. So, you see this big circle in blue? If we were to ask people like Carl Sagan, and Richard Dawkins, or any of these, people who believed, who say there is no God, matter is all there is. This would be assumptions, and I have listed them, this would be assumptions as answers to fundamental questions of life. This is what they would say. There is no reality beyond the reality in which we exist. There is no God, no spirits. Matter is all there is. It is indestructible. Everything came into existence through evolutionary process. Natural selection and cause and effect induce events, processes, behavior. Human beings are complex machines. 
That is simply extinction of life, faculty of reason evolved. It is innate, autonomous. Autonomous means no spirits influence us. It's just on our own. Uh, humans dis determine morality. Uh, ethics relate humans uh, relate only to human beings. History is a linear stream of events due to random cause and effect. There is no purpose in life beyond what human beings decide. That is what, these are all assumptions. And that is what I would call modernist worldview. This worldview, of course, there were individuals who believed very close to this in ancient times. But the, only few individuals in small groups. This worldview took over a society in about 400, 300 years ago. And this is what we call the modern scientific worldview. And this worldview could not exist for too long. Why? Because it has some inherent problems. Because it rejects the world of the spirits, and people do experience spirits. And it rejects the idea that there is anything beyond the grave. And human beings simply have a hard time accepting that assumptions or that argument. After all, there some, must be something after the grave. Okay? So we have to put it down to the corner because we have to come up with the next one. Okay? Next one. I am going to show you here. These are the, if you take a person from ancient India or ancient Asia, that part of the world, and you ask them fundamental questions of life, and they give you answers. This would be the answers. Now read these answers. Everything is one, Om. And this is basically between Hinduism and Buddhism here, but basically Hinduism. Everything, every, Big Bang is actually, every entire cosmos, everything started with Big Om. If you ever went to Hindu temple, you see that big bell. Worshippers would ring that bell. That is to remind them that everything is Om. It started with Om. That sound. Atman, that's the soul of an individual, is Brahman. That is the soul essence of cosmos. So the essence of individual, essence of cosmos is one and the same thing. Some things are more one with the one than the others, like mineral. Mineral is less one with the one. Plants are more one with the one than minerals. Animals even more complex. Human beings are more, the most. But gurus, those mystics who are deep into meditation and contemplation, they are somehow above you and me who are on the common human level, okay? Maya, what is Maya? Maya is, I think you probably talked to me today, Maya is a term that, argument is that what we see here, actually this material world is like, it's in a way illusionary. This is not really real. So in that sense, it's similar to platonic thing, thought. To know, what does it mean to know? To really know something, it is beyond 
you move beyond distinction. That means if you are able through contemplation to arrive to a level of consciousness where you stop distinguishing, you will un understand reality better. And then uh, to realize oneness with the cosmos is to pass beyond personality. Consciousness is a technique to reach one's, one's uh, oneness with the one. Then to discard ma many, if not all, roads lead to the one. You heard that phrase. That's a Buddhist idea. All paths lead to, to on the mountain, all paths lead to the summit. Uh, all roads lead to God. So uh, it is easy for, for a Buddhist to be an Adventist. Buddhists will tell you, you can be an Adventist, it's okay, because that's your path, and this is my path. But it's not easy for an Adventist to be a Buddhist, because Adventists believe that there is only one path, and that is the path of Jesus Christ. Okay, no doctrine alone can be true, you see, that sounds familiar to postmodern idea. Um, resonates at least that. Karma is you reap what you sow. The one is perfect and pure beyond distinction. That is the end of person, but not the end of essence. Thus, you have this idea of reincarnation. It's, it's all, because it's all one. Uh, history is circular. Purpose of life is to reach the oneness with the one. Now, I asked a Hindu priest once, uh, I mean Hindu worshiper, and I asked him, okay, tell me, if I understand you correctly, does that mean that my aim and objective of my spirituality and my prayers and contemplation and good life is to become one with the one and then my personality ceases. I, I cease to exist as a unique, distinct person. And he said, yes. So you are saying that my objective is to cease being distinct person. Yes. Well, thank you very much. That's not what I am after. Do you see the difference between what God? God promised us eternal life where we will be still distinct beings. So that's a huge difference in understanding. Okay? So let's put that one down. Time is passing by. Now this says, if we have Moses here and the prophets, this is what they would say. And now you're familiar with this. There is God, Elohim, Yahweh alone, He is the Creator. He alone is eternal, He is holy, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, righteous, transcendent, imminent. Transcendent, imminent. I mean, those are concepts. He is all of that. Uh, humans are created in the image of God. Human being is body, is a soul, which is made up of matter and breath of life. Let me ask you a question. Were Adam and Eve created immortal? And many students fall into that trap. No, we were not created immortal. God alone is immortal. 
we were created to live eternally. But in order to live eternally, we had to eat from the tree of life. You see, we are dependent on God. And when man sinned, man had to go out of the garden. Could not eat from the tree of life anymore. And isn't that interesting that in the last chapter of the book of Revelation comes the tree of life. The idea that somehow we are immortal, it's, that's not biblical. We are dependent on God. We are created to live eternally, but not immortal. So this is now, okay. Okay, now, you have these three. These are the three fundamental worldviews. Now, all of them you can put on this scales. You talk about deism. Deism was a worldview that existed during the Age of the Enlightenment, 16th, 17th century. In those times, human beings were not yet ready to abandon Christianity totally. They pretty much began arguing that, yes, God created the world, but God is not directly involved in our lives. Gradually, generation over generation, atheism would come and pure materialism, materialistic worldview will come in. Takes time. So what now, you may ask me, well, what do emergence have to do with this? You know what? When I read emergence, they borrow from all three of these. Assumptions of all three of them are in emerging worldview. Now the question is, do we want to go there? You cannot. And so our objective is we have to stay with the scripture. We have to stay with biblical worldview. In other words, with biblical assumptions. You see now, the, my point here is, you can ask me a question in the second part. We have to, uh, I have to wrap it up here in three minutes, and then we'll have a break, then we'll come back. Okay? And we'll continue with it. The point is, this is the, uh, I think, important point to stress. When Brian McLaren tells me everything changed, First of all, Mr. McLaren, yes, a lot of things changed. And you and I can fly over the world. We can see what's happening in China and, uh, in about five seconds until they report on the internet. A lot of things changed, but one thing did not change, and that is human nature and fundamental questions of life did not change. When people tell me, well, one meta-narrative of one culture is is like any other culture, and it is worth listening. Yes, I can listen to it in order to understand it. But every culture is responding to the fundamental questions of life. All those fun questions of life that we identified. Chi ancient Chinese were asking about Native Americans, modern Americans, uh, Turks or Germans or whoever. People are asking these questions. This is common. This did not change. What is changing is, and the differences between different cultures are, what kind of answers people give to these fundamental questions of life. 
And when they put them together, that is their filter. Everything goes through it. Can you change it? Of course. You begin to abandon certain assumptions and replace them with different assumptions. And then you begin to change your worldview. Worldview is nothing else but the level, fundamental level of our beliefs. And our beliefs cannot be scientifically proven or disproven. You can take a lot of evidence to help you understand and hold to what you believe. But my friends, everything comes down to, to belief. Now, you see these lines, the green line that goes from the upper left down, that green line, that is dividing. You have the blue is purely, that's what we call atheistic or closed, I mean atheistic system. There is no God. Matter is all there is. The other one, the yellow and the one down the right, uh, the peach color, the, both of them agree that there is the world of the spirit, something beyond the external world. Now, the red line that you see in the middle, horizontal, that divides something, what we call, uh, James Sire calls open system and closed system. Closed system means argument that everything, external reality and the outside reality, is all part of one system called, I mean, nature, everything that exists. And according to Hindus and Buddhists, Brahman is part of nature because Brahman is not a person. It's not, see, Brahman is not transcendent divinity because Brahman is actually essence of nature. Now, open system means that there is cosmos, there is reality. But Yahweh is transcendent because he created reality, he's beyond it. That's why he, he can act from outside. That's why it's kind of open system. These are huge differences. So when Tayyar Shadan talks to me about God, but then he tells me that God is part of evolutionary system, part of nature. So when a mystic tells me we need to spiritualize the world, that gives, give life, animize the world, matter. What are you talking about? We're talking about I have to spirit, animize the matter. You know what that means? That means when ancient pagans created little figurines, and I learned from Hindus, these people when they worship what we call idols, we think that they are stupid. We think, we say, oh, they're worshiping stone. No, they don't worship the stone. They worship, let's say I make a figure here out of stone. This is so, this is figurine, they say this is only manif material manifestation of the spirit they worship. So Hindu, they'll say, oh, these are our idols. That's what they say. And I say, okay, but they don't worship the idol. That's just a ma physical manifestation. And when one, my student, one of my students pointed out 
that there are two idols standing next to each other, and he's referring to one as a male, the other female. And my student pointed out and said, well, they both look female. And he looked and said, well, no. No, he says, yes, they both look female. He says, well, we'll probably take him to the shop to fix him to look more like male. Now, to us, that's funny. It's not funny to him, because he says, this is only manifestation. We don't worship the idol. We worship the spirit behind it. And so when they tell me we have to animize the matter, I'm supposed to animize the figurine that I just made? I have to worship what it stands for? Do you see why God said, do not make any images of me? And do not worship them. Because God knew very well that human beings, because human beings, always seek to reach the other world, the other reality. They are very easily tempted into worshiping the spirits behind it. And I can understand now much better how is it that Second Commandment somehow slipped out from the Decalogue? Do you understand what I'm talking about? The Second Commandment and the Fourth Commandment will be the battlefield in the days to come. Well, stop here. The time is up. Take a 15-minute break. Come back. We'll continue. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.